The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. Congratulations, all of you who are actually healthy this morning. Yay. Let's pray. Father, we commit this time to you and ask, Lord, that we would be a people for the praise of your glory. These are familiar words, um, and yet, Lord, we, we want to, uh, to feel, as we have this opportunity to look at them with, um, uh, with, uh, with greater focus, that we would feel the, uh, the moment, we would feel uh, what's being communicated here, and that it would, uh, around the table and around this word, find its home in our hearts. Uh, for that to happen, Lord, we need your spirit, so we pray that these would not be my words, but your words, and not my thoughts, but your thoughts. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so we are very familiar with this passage. This might be one of the most commonly read ones here at Stonebridge because we come to the table about once a month and we read this story. Um, there are actually four accounts in the Bible of the Lord's Supper, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, but this in Mark is the notoriously brief one. It's only four verses. Uh, Mark's been notoriously brief about a lot of things, and, and here's one where, where he's being that. But what he does is he grabs a hold of the things that would have most grabbed the attention of the 12 that night. That's all very much on display here. Because what Jesus did is he took a very familiar, traditional script, and then he just did a couple of shocking changes with it. And we're going to try and focus on that this morning. Uh, there have been people throughout history who, probably thinking that they're doing history a favor, uh, have looked at the life of Jesus and tried to explain what went wrong. Because clearly you can't interpret the cross as anything else than a failure, right? And so they would say, well, how could a well-meaning leader, where, would it, where did it go south? And one of these guys in the, uh, the last century was a guy named Albert Schweitzer. Um, he's, uh, his ideas were pretty influential. They crept actually into the church in a lot of ways. And he wrote a, uh, a horrific 
but thought-shaping book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus, where he describes Jesus' attempt to lay hold of the wheel of the world, this, this great spinning wheel, and Jesus is trying to align it and get it, get it pointed back in the right direction in the same trajectory as John the Baptist. And basically what Schweitzer says is that he's trying to get it spinning towards everything it was made for, and when the great wheel doesn't cooperate, Jesus throws himself on it in desperation, and it crushes him. That's Schweitzer's view. In other words, uh, Jesus overplayed his hand. He meant well, but he was a well-meant victim of the system. And Schweitzer, in this horrific paragraph, ends by saying, the wheel rolls onward and the mangled body of the one immeasurable great man who was strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. Happy Easter, Albert, right? I mean, it's amazing when you read that to think that this guy even was reading the same Bible that we're reading or the same passage that we're reading. Please don't take a, like, don't ever quote that anywhere, right? Um, Because what we have seen throughout this whole series in Mark and what we see again in this passage is a Savior who is absolutely in control and has full knowledge of his impending death and is marching intently towards it. He is the only man who has ever truly been the captain of his own fate. There are no gotchas here. There are no surprises. Jesus never says, whoa, I did not see that one coming. That never happens. His eyes have always been fixed on a cross. We've been calling the series King's Cross, and we've seen that even in his most kingly moments, he is cross-focused. So we see a Savior instead of what Schweitzer says. What we see is in the Bible a Savior who would both actively control events and passively submit to them. And if you would just take that sentence and think of it in terms of an outline for the sermon this morning, the two ideas there, that that the Savior would would both actively control events and passively submit to them. The first is him being the, the Lion of Judah. He's in charge. The second is him being the Lamb of God, and yet those we know, are, we understand, are the same person, the same image. Right? So first, we see a Jesus that's actively in control. We have a sovereign Savior. We see this in a lot of places, but here's in verse twelve. We see on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, "Where do you want us to go to make preparations for you to eat the Passover?" So he sent two of the disciples. Luke, by the way, says that this is John and Peter. These two guys he sent John and Peter, telling them, "Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him." And uh, there's more instructions to follow there, right? What I, I think we need help setting the stage here. So let me try and do this. Okay, um, every year at this time. Uh, hundreds of thousands, maybe a couple of million Jews would have come to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And um, they're in town to celebrate because it's the only place where you're allowed to celebrate the the Passover if you're going to have a lamb because the lambs have to be sacrificed at the the temple. And so the the Passover has to happen within the, the city limits. Now, we don't know how many people were there in A.D. 30, but we do know in A.D. 66, just a couple of decades later, um, Josephus gives us the stats. He says that the, there were 255,600 lambs sacrificed that day for the Passover. Okay? Now, there's some stuff in, the, in, in Exodus that talks about how many people per lamb, and it's about 10, so we can guess that there may have been... Um, that, that, by the way, is um, Israelite portions, not American portions, but, but about... <laughs> About 10 per lamb, right? And um, so we can guess there were maybe 2.5 million people in the city that day. 
That may be an exaggeration, but the point is it's wall-to-wall people. Wall-to-wall, right? This is the busiest time of the calendar year. And if you don't have Passover plans until like the day of or the day before, it's kind of like being in Minneapolis on Super Bowl Sunday and expecting you're going to get a, a day of hotel room, right? You need to have made plans in advance. And Jesus has. He tells John and Peter, he says, go into the city and look for a guy with a water jar. Think about that for a minute, okay? 2.5 million people go into the city, look for the guy with the water jar. That sounds like a where's Waldo, right? It sounds like you've got to be kidding, right? You want me to, but actually we don't understand it today, but they understood then this was actually a very good clue because who carried the water jars in first century Israel? The women. Sorry, ladies, but it was considered a domestic chore for the women to carry the water jars. And if men did carry water, they would use a water skin instead of a jar. So telling you to go look for the guy with the water jar would be like today, go and tell you to go to the mall and look for the guy with the purse. It would, it would, he would stick out like a sore thumb, right? And so we see, what we see here is it's very simple for, for them to find him. There aren't any issues here, right? They find him, they follow him. Everything about the room is, is already arranged. All they have to do now is prep the meal. Jesus, what, what's not happening here, Jesus is not predicting the future. Go into the city and um, someone will, will mysteriously appear. And, you know, he's not, he's not looking to the future. He's actually made these plans already, right? He's, he's connected somehow with this, with this guy that owns the room and the guy that, own, that has the, the jar. They've arranged the signal. They've arranged the timing. Um, and he's kept it very intentionally covert for a couple of obvious reasons, right? Uh, one of the most obvious reasons is that there is a warrant currently out for his arrest. We see that in John. It says the chief priests and Pharisees have given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. And he doesn't want to be arrested yet. He wants to make sure this meal happens before then. But the other obvious one, we see it in this passage, is that Judas has already decided to give Jesus up. And so it's, it's clever what he does here. He doesn't tell the disciples, the 12, where the meal is going to be because then Judas could maybe, he could, um, he could blow their cover. So he sends two guys out, arranges a signal, they go and make all the preparations and then, and then the rest of the guys come and basically walk into an already prepared meal where it's too late for Judas to sneak out now and betray the location. It's clever. It's actually very wise. So these arrangements show that Jesus is fully in control of these events. But where we especially see his control, I think, because we see it as a a more ongoing thing, is in verse 18 as it relates to Judas. It says, while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And he later says, yes, it's one of the 12. It's one who dips dips in the same bowl as me. Like he says four different times, one of you is going to betray me. Jesus saw it coming. He saw, he knows the script. He's God. He wrote the script. He understands this, right? And he has intentionally invited a traitor into the band of brothers for the last three years. But he and Judas are the only ones who know it. Obviously, Jesus knew it before even Judas did. And when he drops this bombshell, you look at what the disciples say in verse 19, they were saddened and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. What that tells you is Judas has covered his tracks, great. Because all the other guys in the room are more likely to suspect themselves than to suspect Judas. 
None of the guys know that it's Judas. We know it's Judas, right? Because we've seen the twist at the end of the movie. We know that Darth Vader is Luke's father. We know who Kaiser Soze is. We know that Dr. Malcolm's really dead. And if you don't know any of those things, it's because you haven't seen those movies, right? And I've just ruined all of the movies for you, actually, right? (laughs) These guys haven't seen the twist at the end of the movie. They don't know. So they don't all say, oh, a betrayer? Well, Judas has been acting shifty for three years. It's probably him. A couple of years ago, I showed you a picture of a, a, a Danish, it's a Danish painter named Karl Block of this Last Supper, and I asked you, which one of those is Judas? <laughs> it's like it's really obvious, right? It's the shifty guy with the red hair over there. Can't trust a redhead. There he is right there. <laughs> but in real life, Jesus, Judas wasn't the sneaky guy in the corner with the sinister mood lighting, Right? He was one of the 12. He was respected. They, they trusted him. They trusted him with the money. Turns out they shouldn't have, but they did. They trusted him with the money. There was nothing obvious on the surface. We find out, in fact, in John 13, when it's describing this account, even after this conversation between Jesus and Judas that goes into a bit more detail, even after Judas left, the other guys all thought he was going grocery shopping. I'm not making this up. You can look it up later. It's John 13, verse 29. They all thought he was going out to get some groceries. They didn't get it. They did not see this coming, but Jesus did. Jesus was the only one who knew what what Judas was up to. And he has played along, and that makes Jesus not the victim of this story, but it makes him, in a sense, the narrator of it. He's not only in it, but he stands outside of it, right? He's the voice outside of it. He holds the whole plot in his hand. Verse 21 has been called... Uh, one of the greatest verses in the Bible on the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Listen to this. It's a scary verse. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. It's clear here that God is fully in charge, and yet Judas is fully responsible, fully culpable, fully guilty, right? We can picture Judas saying on the day of judgment, well, hold on, Jesus. Turns out, like, I actually helped you, right? I mean, I was carrying out your will. If it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have ended up on the cross and your people would still be in their sins. So in a way, you could kind of thank me for what I did. I mean, this isn't going to fly at the judgment. Not so much. R.C. Sproul calls this the mystery of concurrence. And he says this, two streams came together. The sovereign will of God and the earthly will of human flesh. The sovereign God worked his will in and through the choices of his creatures. Judas did exactly what Judas wanted to do. But God brought good out of evil, redemption out of treachery. So you can't read this this text and say that Jesus was a victim of circumstances. He's been talking about this moment all along. He's been walking intentionally towards it. And here we see that he's already picked the time. He's picked the place. The meal is set. The traitor is known. The traitor is revealed. The road to the cross has been absolutely intentional. Jesus knows exactly how this is going to happen. So that's it. He's actively in control of events. But remember I I said, think of this as... uh, two parts of a sermon, that he's actively in control of events, but he also passively submits to them. And he is about to describe how he's going to passively submit to the events. And it's in verse 22, these familiar words. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. When they had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. 
And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Those words, like I said, I know they're very familiar to churchgoers, uh, but what I want to try and do is describe the Passover a bit so that we can recover some of the shock that uh, would have been felt the first time those words were said. Remember that the Passover was a memorial reenactment of something that had happened in the book of Exodus when, when Israel fled from, from Egypt. And there were, remember that there was a series of 10 plagues that culminate in this last plague, the plague of the firstborn, which says that the firstborn uh, in every family in Egypt is going to die. And the only way out of it is for the, the Jews to take a lamb, sacrifice it, put the blood on the doorpost, and that when the angel of death comes, he would pass over those, those households, right? You can read about this in Exodus 12. It's there. So and from what I understand, by the way, our two-year Bible reading plan, if you're using the, um, the Bible reading plan, I guess this morning's reading is Exodus 12. So maybe some of you have already read it, right? For every house in Egypt, that means you would either have a dead lamb or you would have a dead firstborn. Every house. And the Passover didn't just pass over you because you were Jewish. It's funny because in the other nine plagues, that's how it worked. It's like it it hit Egypt, it didn't hit the Jews, right? But this one, you couldn't trust your genealogy on it. You couldn't trust your moral goodness. You couldn't trust your religious pedigree or your racial pedigree. You, You needed to do something. You needed to put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. You needed to put yourself under the blood of the lamb. And God makes to Israel in Exodus 6, uh, in two verses, he makes four promises to, uh, to Israel about this. He says this, Therefore say to the Israelites, uh, I've underlined the promises here, you'll see, I am the Lord, and here's the first one, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And then the second one, I will free you from being slaves to them. And here's the third one, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And then lastly, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So he promises them four things. Okay? Promises them rescue from Egypt, freedom from slavery. He promises redemption by God's divine power. And then he promises this um, renewed relationship with God. You see those four things there, right? So now in future years, when the Passover was celebrated, those, those four promises became four cups of wine, okay? What I've tried to do is lay out the Passover here kind of pictorially so you can picture what's happening during the Passover, okay? So it would start like this. The, the family head, who is the host of the meal, would, um, would pronounce a blessing over the evening as the whole and then over the first cup of wine, and they would all take the first cup. And then the food is brought in and it's laid out, but they, they won't eat it yet, but it's, the food is, is prepared and, and brought out. And then from what I understand, the, the youngest child who's able in the room is, is uh, to recite this question. And this question is, uh, is it simply this, why is this night different from all other nights? And there are a couple of other questions that he'll ask, but in the, in the responses, in this traditional kind of liturgical response, that the host of the meal will, will explain the story in Exodus 12 and will explain what everything at the table represents. He's going to explain the symbolism of it and the story. And then they would end by singing three um, psalms. Uh, the first half of what's called the Hallel Psalms. It's Psalm 113, 14, and 15. Uh, and they would sing those. And then they would drink the second cup. And at that point, the, the head of the house, after the drinking of the second cup, the head of the house would take bread, and, uh, and this is unleavened bread, and he would break it, and he would bless it. Um, remember, verse 22 says, 
Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, that's cool because we know pretty much exactly what he would have said there. When he had given thanks, this is what he would have said. This is what they all said. Uh, said, the Lord our God, sovereign of the world, who has caused bread to come forth out of the earth. And then the host breaks the bread, and he hands it out to be eaten with uh, some bitter herbs that represent the bitterness of the sojourn in in Egypt and also some uh, stewed fruit that has the color of uh, bricks that would remind them of the bricks that they were forced to make in their slavery. What you need to know is that the handing out of the bread at this moment is is a very somber moment. It's a very silent moment, full silence. And yet this is exactly where Jesus calls the audible, right? Right? Because as the bread's being passed around in this, in this solemn, silent moment, suddenly you hear these words, take it, this is my body. That would have, I, I, I was trying to think of what, how could we, what, what analogy could we use to relate how shocking that would be in this solemn moment to have Jesus just throw some extra words out. I don't know, I was picturing maybe at the end of the national anthem, like whoever's singing it, just singing a couple of their own verses of it just at the end. Or, or maybe you're in a place, uh, uh, it's a very quiet place, and in the middle of it, your child blurts out something very embarrassing to you, right? But in other words, these are moments where the last thing you want to do is call attention to yourself, and yet that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's calling full attention to himself by saying that this bread that's me- meant to represent Israel's affliction is now representing him. And we've talked about this before, but remember that um, all along, Jesus has been talking throughout his ministry about bread. Uh, In John 6 and other places, he talks about being the bread of life. Uh, He was born in Bethlehem, which means city of bread. Uh, We find out that uh, it's told, it's said repeatedly in the scriptures that the reason that the disciples didn't get it is because they didn't understand about the bread. And he uses the bread imagery in a lot of places to describe who he is, daily bread, all the rest. But here he's using it once again to explain his work. This time it's about his bread being broken. So it's picturing the cross, right? And that would have been, I'm sure, an awkward moment, right, for for that to happen. Right in the middle of this whole thing for him to say these words. But then uh, they would, after this, they would eat the meal. And I'm going to come back to the meal in a minute. So just kind of put a bookmark in that for just a minute, right, where that lamb is on the pictorial there, okay? Um, we'll come back to that. But after the meal, the head of the family would uh, bless the third cup, which would end with these lines. And notice that it also says here, it says, when Jesus blessed the cup, uh, that we, we can assume that this is what he said. May the all-merciful one make us worthy of the days of the Messiah and of the life of the world to come. He brings the salvation of his king. He shows his covenant faithfulness to his anointed, to David and to his seed forever. He makes peace in the heavenly places. May he secure peace for us and for all Israel. And say you amen. And then they would say amen. And then the cup was passed. The third cup is passed around, right? And this is another solemn moment, silent, right? Just a, it is a, a quiet moment. It's still. And somewhere as this cup is getting passed around, you hear bombshell moment number two. And Jesus says, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. I hope you get the sense of the shock of it. This is a, a liturgy that's been practiced for generations for for centuries, and and Jesus is freestyling here, right? He's calling an audible. He's inserting this other language into it that's taking all of the the stuff on the table, and he's reinterpreting it as himself. Jesus has told them repeatedly that he's going to die, 
He's gotten increasingly more specific about it, but right here what he's doing is he's actually acting it out for them. And he's asking them to accept his body and his blood as a new covenant, as a new promise between God and his people. And then it says that they would end with a hymn. Uh, They would sing the second half of the Hallel Psalms, which would be Psalms... Uh, 116, 117, 118, and then they would drink the fourth cup. And I wish I had time to talk about those, those hymns because Psalm 118, among others, I mean, there's so much in there, but Psalm 118 is the one that talks about the stone that the builders rejected. It's become the cornerstone. This is the exact thing that Jesus uh, talked about referring to himself back in chapter 12. We already looked at that. But the point is, there's a lot of imagery. There's a lot more that we could talk about. But what I want to do is end by talking about two things that probably didn't happen that night because I think that they are just as telling as all the things that I just talked about that did, okay? So here's the first one. Between the second uh, and the third cup, in fact, between the breaking of the bread and the third cup, they would have had the meal. What's the main course at the Passover? It's pretty obvious, right? It's, It's a lamb, right? And yet, here's the thing. In none of the accounts, as it relates to the Last Supper, is a lamb ever mentioned, which is weird on several accounts, on several levels. I mean, it's possible that it just wasn't mentioned. There's other things that weren't mentioned, too, especially in Mark. He's very brief, right? It's entirely possible. But if Jesus were to look at the whole spread and were to pick, look at all the pictorial, and were to pick the one image that would most clearly symbolize how the Passover was fulfilled in him, which one would he have picked? If there was a lamb on the table, don't you think he would have pointed at that and said, this is my body. I'm the sacrificial lamb. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And 2,000 years later, we'd be gathering around this table to eat lamb, not bread and, and a cup. Why did he ignore that image? It's the most obvious one, don't you think? It's, it's right there. It's clear as day. We know that Jesus was introduced by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who, break, who takes away the sin of the world, right? We know that in 1 uh, Corinthians 5, verse 7, it talks about Jesus being our Passover Lamb. We know that Jesus appropriated the image of Isaiah in 53 and says that he was uh, led like, uh, like a, a lamb before his shears is silent, right? And it talks about um, uh, that he was our, our, our sacrificial Lamb, the suffering servant. And so why wouldn't Jesus say, do this in remembrance of me? Let's eat the meal. There are differing views on this, and what I need to say is that some people will disagree with what I'm about to say, okay? But, and uh, talk to me later if you want the full, my, my full rationale for why I would hold this, this idea. But what if Jesus didn't use the lamb imagery because there was no lamb on the table? That actually squares the accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really well to say that. Um, Talk to me afterwards if you want to hear the whole rationale, but let me describe this to you. In John, we find out that the Pharisees, even as they're pushing Jesus through his trial and execution, are trying to do it while keeping their hands clean so that they will still be ceremonially clean so that they can do what? So that they can celebrate the Passover, which means it hasn't happened yet. During Jesus' trial and even his execution, the Passover hasn't happened yet. We Westerners, we get super confused about this because we think of a day as uh, midnight to midnight, but you guys know that in, in a Jewish calendar, a day is marked as dusk to dusk. And so in verse 12, it says that we're at the day when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. Yes, we are at the day. It's dusk of that day. It's going to happen the next morning, Friday morning, but we're still at Thursday night. Does that make sense? 
And so Jesus is intentionally getting the, the meal, this is what I'm suggesting, is he's intentionally getting the meal set up a day early because he knows that he will, by, by, by the next night, he will be in the grave. You were allowed to celebrate the Passover early, but here's the thing. Um, among other things, um, you know, it, it had to, sometimes it had to happen that way because Jerusalem was so crowded that even just to get a room, uh, you might have to celebrate it uh, a day early. But if you schedule early, you won't get a lamb because the lambs are sacrificed on Friday morning, right? The temple won't be sacrificing lambs until the morning, until Friday morning. So if you eat it Thursday night, you're going to get a vegetarian meal, right? Yay, vegetarians, right? You're excited about that. So the disciples definitely celebrated the Passover. There's no getting around that. This, is, this was all about the Passover, everything. They d- definitely had a, a Passover meal. What I'm suggesting is that maybe it was a day early. Maybe it was Thursday night, and that is the traditional view. That's why we celebrate Maundy Thursday. And if, that, if everything I just described just makes your head hurt, then don't worry about it. Just let it go. But here's the thing. There are two pieces of application from that that are really important. The first is this. If, if Jesus referred to the, the bread and the wine instead of the lamb because there was no lamb on the table, that doesn't mean that the lamb wasn't at the table. The lamb was at the capital L, lamb was at the table. There's a lamb present at the meal. It's Jesus. For the believer, there will be no more sacrifices because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, right? All of the Passover imagery, all of it is fulfilled in Jesus. If you want to escape the curse of death, you can't rely on your moral goodness or your your religious pedigree. You need to be under the blood of the lamb. That's the gospel. The gospel says you're not good enough, you're not noble enough, you're not religious enough, you're not capable enough, you're not smart enough, but you've come to realize that Jesus is enough and you hide in that. You let him be your righteousness. You let his blood cover you, his righteousness cover you. It's awesome to see this. I think even in a non-Christian context, this thing absolutely blows me away. We had a guy here many years ago named Don Richardson who wrote a book called Peace Child. He came in. He's talking about these, um, uh, these, these different little clues that you see built into other, people, uh, other people's cultures that actually point to the gospel. And uh, one of them is in Chinese. Um, this is the, the, the character for righteousness. And you guys know that the, the, the uh, characters in Chinese are often a compound of multiple other simpler characters often one placed over another one to make a different word out of. The compound word for righteousness there, the compound thought, is it's made up of two words, one over the other. There's the two characters for, that, that go into the word righteousness. And this is what they are. Lamb, me. The lamb's on top. I'm on the bottom. The lamb is over me. That's the definition in Chinese character of righteousness, that the lamb is over me. Guys, um, what character do you tend to put in that position of prominence over me, <laughs> right? Even those of you guys who are Christians and you know that Jesus is the right answer, but your heart tends to go, your, in your heart of hearts, when you forget that Jesus is the right answer, where does it go? What do you put there? My moral goodness over me? My reputation over me? My religious attainments over me? What do you tend to put there? The only thing that defines what righteousness truly is is the lamb over me, Christ's righteousness over mine. That's the definition. And if I'm right on the timeline, then this was sobering for me this week to think about that what this means is the next morning, Friday morning, is when they were sacrificing the lambs. 
200 and something thousand lambs in the temple being sacrificed and that while they're being sacrificed, just right outside the city, the capital L Lamb of God is being sacrificed as the fulfillment of all the activity that's going on in the temple. Could he even have heard the lambs bleeding as he was saying it is finished at the end? Everything that the activity in the temple was representing that day, everything that it was pointing to is being fulfilled just outside the city wall. It doesn't end with that. It doesn't end with Jesus' death, right? And Jesus says that even in the meal. We see it pictured here, right? Because there's something else. Maybe the lamb is missing. There's something else that's missing too. And it's this. Jesus says after the, the, the third cup, he says, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So he's, he takes his drink and he says, I'm not gonna drink this again until the kingdom of God. And then there's no record that, that they drink the fourth cup. Now again, maybe it just wasn't mentioned, maybe it's just, uh, it just was an omission, but it, it's interesting because they're supposed to sing three, they're supposed to sing a hymn and then, and then they're supposed to drink the cup and then they leave. But it doesn't say that they do that. It says after they had sung a hymn, they left. And I picture these guys walking out, tapping Jesus on the shoulder and saying, no, wait, 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 you forgot something. We're supposed to drink the fourth cup, right? Here's what Jesus has done with that. When he says, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new. He takes that, that fourth cup and he puts it off into a, a later day. He says, no, the, this meal's not over yet. There will be a day when we complete this meal but it hasn't happened yet. I, well, this is what I picture Jesus doing, right? Um, it's like when a friend invites you over for dinner and you just had this amazing meal. Uh, it's a great spread. And, you know, you're sitting around after the meal, kind of you're pushing maximum density at this point, And it's just, it's just been a phenomenal, phenomenal meal. And uh, the host gets up and starts to, to pick up the dishes. And you're wondering if at this moment they are going to say those three magical words that are going to make your trip to their house like the most epic trip ever, right? What are the three magic words? Do you know they're very simple. It's keep your fork, right? <laughs> when they say keep your fork, they're not saying keep your fork. We would like you to have it as a souvenir of your visit. They're not saying keep your fork. You'll need it to stir your coffee, right? They're saying keep your fork because there's something else coming and it's going to be good, right? Keep your fork because dessert is still to be on the table. There is something still to come. They wouldn't ask you to keep your fork unless there was more to anticipate, and if you would allow me to be overly simplistic about this whole thing for a moment, I picture the disciples asking as they're heading out to the Mount of Olives, say, wait, what, Jesus, what about the fourth cup? And he says, keep your fork. We'll do this one later. There is something really good coming. This meal is not over yet. One day when I make all things new, we will sit around the table and experience the perfected relationship of what it means for you to be my people and for me to be your God. And we will gather not at this table that I've arranged, but we will gather at the Father's feast. When we come to this table, and we're going to do that right now, we, we, um, we don't usually do communion kind of right in the middle of the month, but how could you not after this passage, right? Um, this is a foretaste. And I hope that this passage has, has brought out for you um, just a bit more of just the imagery of what happens when we gather around. I mean, there's so many layers of imagery that happen when we come to the table. There's so many different things that we could say. There's layers of meaning. When we come to the table, we proclaim our sin. We, we proclaim our faith. We proclaim our dependence on him. We proclaim our, our hope. We raise our forks, right, and proclaim our hope. 
we declare that our lamb is at the table. And Paul writes, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We anticipate the great feast. And until then, guys, here we go. We get to do it again today. We gather, we, we take, we eat and drink, we remember, and we save our forks, and we await the day. I love this thought from Tim Keller. He shares this in his book, King's Cross. And uh, he says, imagine, he asks you to imagine that you were in Egypt just right after the Passover, the first Passover. And uh, you stopped this entourage walking out of Egypt and you said, who are you and what is happening here? This is an answer that you might have gotten. They would say, I was a slave under a sentence of death But I took shelter under the blood of the lamb and escaped that bondage and now God lives in our midst and we are following him to the promised land. That is exactly what Christians say today. Let me read it again. I was a slave under a sentence of death but I took shelter under the blood of the lamb and escaped that bondage and now God lives in our midst and we are following him to the promised land. That is the gospel. That's what Christians say. In other words, we've been freed, we've been emancipated, we've been redeemed and we have hope. And so we're marching there, we're saving our forks and we're longing for the feast. Let's pray and ask before we come to this meal that God would let this feel like that for us. Let's pray. Father, um, would you take these common elements and use them for uh, an uncommon purpose to sign and seal your covenant, your new relationship, the fourth cup, the, the reminder that you have made things right. We long for the day, Lord, when we, we see everything made right because we look around the world and we see everything made wrong. But Lord, we look in our own hearts and we recognize that um, uh, there's, there's where we need you to come into and make, make things new. And so we come to you a, a broken people and a dependent people, but we are so grateful, Lord, that we in Christ come to you a forgiven people. And we ask, Father, that you would come and meet with us right now, that we would sense your, your loving presence and your great forgiveness and the great truths that this, this, uh, this moment represents. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Folks, I hope it makes sense up to this point that what I'm describing means that this, this is a faith moment. The, the little piece of bread that we're about to pass out and the little cup picture our faith. And so the Bible actually gives warnings, says you need, to, you need to have faith in order to take these things. So if you're here this morning and this, this whole idea of the lamb over me just feels foreign, like what does it mean that I would trust in Jesus' work and not my own? What does that mean even? Then just know that um, there are answers to those questions, but right now let those... Let, take this time to ponder that question rather than to take these elements because these elements picture faith. They don't make faith. They picture a faith that's already there. But also remember that this table is a table for sinners. So you don't need a lot of faith, (laughs) just a mustard seed. So if you come and you go, man, I'm not worthy of this, isn't that the point? Isn't that the only qualification of being able to come to the table is to recognize you're not worthy of this, but Jesus is. And you're trusting in him. That's what this is about. So we read that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and having given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same manner, after supper, Jesus took the cup, and having given thanks, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood shed for many for the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul writes, for as often as we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim, we show forth the Lord's death until he comes. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna pass out the bread, and let me encourage you, when you get the bread, just, uh, as you're led, go ahead and take that on your own. It's a reminder that what he's done, he's done for you individually. So take it individually. But then when the cup gets passed around, will you hang on to that? Because we wanna also have this moment of solidarity, this moment of uh, we have gathered together to enjoy the feast and uh, to remember what he's done for us as a church. And So we'll take that together. Receive now the elements.